0: buccaneers what's up this is toby lawless with the lawless crowd where we have thoughtful discussions with industry professionals on the crazy business and craft of commercial acting this podcast is all about leveraging my experience to share inside information and perspectives that may help you on your path to success i'm a strong believer that information is power the power to get better at what you do to forward your career and ultimately to book more Simply stated, my goal at The Lawless Crowd is to help actors succeed by sharing inside perspectives of commercial industry professionals. This week, we're back with another killer industry interview with Kenneth Suarez of Brickhouse Talent. Kenneth is a super smart and insightful commercial talent agent here in LA. In this interview, we discuss things like the best way to get an agent, how to work with your agent to generate more opportunities, when and how do you move on from your agent when you feel like it's time, the state of the union. And of course, what you can do to get more auditions. So, buckle up, get your sodas, grab your popcorn. Here we go. Kenny, Kenneth, (laughs) thanks for joining,
1: man. No problem. Happy to be here.
0: We've had so many good conversations one on one that I was very excited to kind of chat with you on the record or for others to hear you know so much of what I do I feel like is just sharing perspective and I'm in the unique position of sort of having access to information and people that others don't and I think there's so much good information in there that people aren't able to see so I'm all about sharing that out and I feel like you're sort of like-minded which is why I thought that was a good call.
1: Oh, nice of you to to think so. I like to think so. Yeah. So can you tell me uh, a little bit about
0: you just so there's some context for this about, you know, you're an agent. Where are you an agent? How did you get started?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, one of two owners at Brick Entertainment. We're a boutique commercial talent agency. We do only commercials. We do some print. The other owner is Nelson Henderson. It's the two of us. We purchased the business from the previous owner. His name was Barry Rick hence the name Brick.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Barry owned the agency for approximately 10 years, 8 to 10 years. And I was actually a client of the agency many, many moons ago. And Barry and I had developed a, a good bond and friendship over the years. And at one point, he had two junior agents who left the agency and he was looking for a new agent. He asked me to put my ear to the ground. And At some point, I called him and said I would be interested in, you know, being an apprentice and learning the business and possibly doing this myself. And he thankfully was open to that idea and he thought I would be good at it. And so I started working at the agency and very quickly found that I had a knack for this. And the rest is kind of history. Uh, Barry, unfortunately, passed away rather suddenly and his family and he wished for the agency to continue if I wanted to. And so uh, at that point, I brought on Nelson as a partner, and we bought the business from the Rick family. So how long ago was it when you first came on? Uh, It was about 10 and a half years ago, and and we bought the business nine and a half years ago. And how long were you acting for? I was active as an actor for about 15 years.
0: So do you feel like that gives you some perspective when you're working with your clients? How do you feel... It impacts your work with your clients. Because I feel like that's relatively
1: rare. I, I think so. I mean, I, I know a decent number of reps who, at one time or another, were performers. Mm-hmm. In most cases, it was for a very short period of time. I don't meet a lot of reps who were performers for many years. Mm-hmm. So it certainly, you know, provides us with a certain understanding of the journey and, you know, the obstacles and the difficulties involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always like to joke, we know how to give directions to casting offices since we've been to all of them. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> but there's a certain, uh, I think, empathy that we approach the yeah. business with that, I think has suited us well. I feel like our clients feel well taken care of because of it. And it also provides us with, you know, on the flip side of that, it also provides us with a certain upper hand when there is an issue and, you know, we're addressing it with a client and they know that we're addressing it from the point of view of we understand, we understand that it's difficult. I mean, it most often comes up with availability issues and we'll probably get into later, Mm -hmm. but um, you know, we sort of know some of the behind-the-scenes tricks of the trade as a performers, and so that stuff doesn't sit well with us at times.
0: <laughs> Got yeah. it. Got it. You know the tricks. Exactly. So what is, from your perspective, I kind of want to talk a little bit about how you see your job. What do you feel like is an agent's primary responsibility?
1: Access, to put it simply. Access to opportunity is primary, and then that's sort of 1A, and then 1B would be to advocate on the actor's behalf, whether that mean by pitching them into rooms or by negotiating for them when they're hired on a job.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, I'd put as a third responsibility, an important responsibility would be, you know, advice and counsel to help make decisions about projects, to advice and counsel as it relates to materials and to you know, gaining more opportunity, which again we'll get into.
0: That seems like an added bonus that is maybe available due to the boutique nature and empathetic owners of this agency in particular. Because that almost feels like a management function in a lot of ways. Well, it's
1: it's interesting that you say that because my partner Nelson often refers to it that way. He said that we have a managerial style of agenting. Mm-hmm. I would stop short of saying that we're we because we certainly don't take on as much as a real good, thorough manager does. I mean, you know, a really good manager is is on top of a lot of aspects of a a performer's career. So I think it's sort of a hybrid, maybe. And you guys
0: are strictly
1: commercial. That's right. That's right. We decided early on, um, first of all, that's where I knew that business much better than the theatrical business in terms of the ins and outs, the transactions, the lingo Just how the whole business works. I have a background in advertising from many, many years ago, and so that combined with many years of you know taking commercial classes with an instructor who incorporated the business of the business into the class, Mm -hmm. I I sort of picked up uh, the other side of our business really well, Mm -hmm. I guess. And so, so we just understood it. It's much more straightforward. It's much more transactional, and. To be quite frank, there seems to be a little less at stake mm. for performers and for everyone involved. Less? What do you mean, less at stake? Well, you know, this is one person's view. But I, you know, when I see a theatrical project, particularly a film or, or a TV series for that matter, you know, you have somebody who's worked on this project for years. I see what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they they have a lot at stake. This is their more personal. Yeah, it becomes more personal, and then a performer's you know involvement in that project becomes more personal.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. That's an interesting point. I've never thought of it like that.
1: Yeah, and so with commercials, it's sort of wash rinse repeat. You know, there's a little less attached to it.
0: Yeah, and I can say with some authority that there's not too much personal going on in terms of the agency and directors engagement and attachment to their work you know i think that of course they're proud of it and they're trying to make it great and good and fun and funny but it's not very often where it's personal you know that it's like their personal story and in the same sense and also you know there's not as much depth clearly so you know i think there's less of an opportunity for it to be quite as personal i think more so they're just attached to sort of ah like feeling good about the ability to create 30-second stories, like, with some clarity and some punch. And, like, that's a real skill set, you know? So there's a pride involved in that. But it's never, like, I would reach the same peaks of, like, pride of a personal project that's a hour and a half and five years in the making.
1: Yeah, plus there's an ulterior motive there, which is to sell product. Correct. Right. It's always infused. Right, whereas, you know, a film or TV project is to tell a story that will garner interest in an audience. So there's two different motives. Plus, the ad agencies are somewhat detached from Hollywood. So it's a little less, excuse the word, incestuous, right? It's these people are typically outside of the sort of Hollywood machine. So that appealed to us and appealed to me in particular, because, you know, there was an opportunity to transact business and help our client move their career forward, but without the the emotional attachment. Per se, So that's one of the main reasons. The other reason is that, you know, theatrical, the theatrical world is comprised of I don't know how many cast and directors and showrunners and executives and the list goes on and on and on. And to tackle that giant mountain, you know, as a small operation. It's not enough time in the day. So, yeah, um, you know, you know, this commercial c- casting, you know, there's about 40 casting directors in town that do most of the jobs and, and there's possibly another 20 that do, you know, a few jobs a year, um, that's a manageable number to keep in touch with and maintain relationships with. So,
0: so if your uh, chief responsibilities are access to opportunity
1: and advocating,
0: how does, it, like in your estimation, how does an agent do their job very well?
1: Well, you know, borrowing those two items you just mentioned, I mean, providing a channel to or access to auditions and getting in front of casting directors who are casting jobs is primary if your actors aren't auditioning they're not booking right so and what does that look like is that what you're yeah yeah. sort
0: of like so if that's the definition of the what i guess the question is what's the how for you guys because i I think is really myself as an actor and even in casting because i i really haven't had much behind the scenes experience with agents i think it's good for actors to know like the work that their agents are doing and like how much work it is how they do it what they need to do their job well. Um, so if, like, you're talking about, like, well, we're providing opportunity because we have relationships, you know, we're managing our relationships with these 40 casting directors who are the primary bread earners for the industry. Um, what does that look like? Are we just sort of just the way that we interact with them and submitting on their jobs and making sure we're on point in terms of our actors showing up? And, like, what does it mean?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Some casting directors use the term, you know, It's a little bit of a buzzword that I'm not a big fan of, but I understand it. It's called Policing Your Actors. And, you know, we've heard that from casting before. And what that means, to just grab one slice of what you just discussed, that means, you know, being on top of our actors in terms of schedules, availability. Do they look like their picture? Mm -hmm. Making everyone's job easier. Yeah. Can they deliver the sensibility, the vibe, the comedic style, the accent, the skill that the cast director is looking for? So being really specific about our submissions, that's been a trend in commercial casting for many, many years now. Um, And part of that is the digital platform is driven by the digital platform. Um, casting is being asked to do more with less. And so they're in turn asking the agents to be a lot more specific about their submissions. And so what we try to do is we try to present our actors in a light that suits the, the role that's being requested. And that also suits their, what they bring to the room. And so, you know, really trying to to draw clean lines between casting and our performers. That happens through profiles, it happens through pictures, it happens through notes that we write and submissions to help Right. You know, bolster the submission. Define. And then it, you know, it also happens when we pitch and we'll pitch every day.
0: Every day. I was going to ask how often that is for you. How, how big of a part is that?
1: It's a big part. It's an important part. You know, it's only natural that sometimes out of sight, out of mind. An actor might, you know, be in front of a CD for a while and then, you know, not be in front of that CD for a little while. A lot of casting directors need to show their ad agency clients new talent over time. So, Or they simply forget. Or they simply forget. I mean, we've had numerous examples of clients who maybe go on the road for some kind of tour or a job. You know, they take some time off or they'll do a a regional theater gig and come back, and it's like starting the engine all over again. So that's where pitching can come in handy. When you uh, have new clients come on board who have been with different agencies before, it's helpful, especially if they have fans, to let the casting people, those fans know where this person is now.
0: So to be clear, we're talking about there you see a breakdown. Maybe you've even submitted, likely, uh, your actors, and you're not getting any bites, meaning the the casting director maybe has sort of left what you think is a good match for this project on the table you'll call them call them on on the the phone phone or email email them and say hey what, what would an email look like
1: an email would look like a short introduction and you know we're we wanted to highlight this submission for this spot and this role so everything very specific so it's easy to track for casting uh we'd include a picture or pictures of our client or clients and then under each name their name and a short description of what they're about and what their strengths are and how it suits the role. That's pretty thorough. Yeah. I mean, it it helps it again, everything, you know, because so much of it and you've worked on the casting side, you know, that so much of this is built on speed and accuracy Mm -hmm. more and more. Yeah. So any way that we can make it seamless for casting to see that this is a good fit, the better. So,
0: yeah. And Pop, I mean, I guess it depends on your relationship with the casting director. But do you feel like that makes a difference, those pitches? Because I know there's offices that don't pitch at all.
1: It makes a difference to us. I mean, again, you know, every agency is different. Every agency has different relationships. Every agency has different modus operandi, if you will. Like, everybody does things differently. So I can only speak on our behalf. But we have made that a part of our DNA from the beginning. And it's not something that we do to an individual Casting director over and over and over again we don't bombard them but we are sending email or calling and pitching every day because you know especially especially when there's a really good match and this person is not on that casting director's radar it can be the difference between a booking not book for sure and and if it, it doesn't end up in a booking but that actor you know gets a call back impresses along the way now it's new a new chance for that actor yeah. Exactly. So let
0: me ask you this: If I'm an hypothetically here, I'm an actor that is reps by you. What's the best way that I can help
1: you help me? Well, it's a real open-ended question. I'll try to answer it as best I can. First and foremost is to view our partnership as a business partnership. That's something that we talk to our performers about, and I talk to actors about in general. And many times I get a curious look because it's, you know, slightly different way of looking at it. A lot of times, you know, there are more actors than agents. So there's a certain supply and demand there, but we are in a partnership. We're deciding together that we're going to book commercials and we're going to go at this together and we're going to figure this out together. So there's responsibilities on both sides of the you know, spectrum. So for a performer, there's a few primary things that we sort of expect on our end, you know, flexibility, availability, and I say availability with an asterisk. Obviously, if you're a busy actor, your availability is limited to when you can make auditions, but we'd all be so lucky. So availability and flexibility are really important because commercials move so quickly. We see more and more same day auditions. If you can't make the audition, you can't book the job. We can't earn money. That's the necessary component. So that's first and foremost, we experienced, you know, and I'm sure this, my colleagues in the aging community would agree, you know, one of the more frustrating things for us is to have somebody really talented who just can't make it to enough auditions. And then that performer gets frustrated that, you know, that their career isn't going in the direction that they want it to go. Those are two, Um, you know, the age old obvious one is, you know, and take it with a grain of salt, but pictures, you know, um, we, we accurate. Yes. And pictures that are of a quality that a character is going to be able to see them clearly and view a professional being submitted to them as opposed to somebody who's, who's doing this part time. Got it. And, you know, perception is everything. So just like if, you know, if I receive a, a handwritten note on a nice piece of stationery, it's impressive. If I receive a handwritten note on a post it, it says something. It doesn't mean that the note isn't nice. It just, there's an impression that we take away from it. Sure. It tells a story. It does. It tells something about the person writing
0: it, too. So, what's your take on uh, what do you tell talk to your actors about in terms of sending
1: postcards? You know, I, I don't have a hard line either way. I think, you know, everything is worth trying. Um, I think there's, There's different ways to attack our business, and it depends on who you are and where your skill set lies. You know, I'm sure through your travels, you've met performers who are really great at working a room and meeting people in person and making them feel important and aligning themselves with people who can move their career forward. Other people are just technicians, really good actors who are really good in the room, who that's all they're about, and then they go home and they live a quiet life and they don't really like to be around people. And then you have everything in between. You have people who are, you know, really good at taking classes and, you know, picking up skills and covering ground by meeting cast and directors through those avenues. So you, are, you do say sort of play to your strengths? That's exactly it. You know, and I don't, you know, I know I've heard cast say oh the postcards you know just get thrown in the trash and for the most part that might be true but you know if somebody's casting something and it comes through at the right time there's,
0: yeah there's... I used to kind of take a hard line on it from the casting perspective I'm like don't send it but don't send postcards but then I realized that was really more my own personal take yeah meaning I'm that's not my style Because I do work in castings and I do see that 80 to 90% go directly in the trash without a casting director look at them. However, I had people push back against me and be like, "Um, dude, I book jobs off of that. I book jobs off of postcards. And I'm like, okay, so my like addended or amended position is now as long as you know that 80% of them are going in the trash, but 20% may not. And it may help you. But if you go, into it, expecting like, oh, everyone's going to look at my postcard, and this is it. For me, it was never worth the time and energy and money. Sure, you know, I was like, ah, it's not that; those odds aren't worth it, and I don't enjoy doing it ever. There's people, you know, who it is worth it to, and they'll say, "I'll do anything I can to help myself." I think sometimes when they just see my face, if they happen to see it, that could trigger something, and that is true. What? It may just, you know, just like you were saying, like um, out of sight, out of mind. That might be one thing where it's like, oh yeah, Eric, oh, he's perfect for this job, but. There's no guarantee.
1: No, right? of course. And plus, it's just another way to remind somebody. And it's how you do it too, right? Everything's in the doing. So if, Correct. if you send a postcard and, you know, you have a skill for, you know, I don't know, maybe it's funny or it looks funny or it's interesting or unique or maybe there's this tiny gift attached that's really interesting. Who knows? I mean, some people are just really skilled at doing that. I know an actor... A good friend of mine, who he works quite a bit in TV, he uh, he sends a handwritten note to the director and producer after each time he works on a film, and he said that he's gotten more phone calls about that. He said it just it it really impacts him because they usually tell him, "I never get anything handwritten anymore." You know, it's always emails and texts and and real quick one offs. It's just so nice to receive a genuine thank you note about the experience. Yeah. Right?
0: Yeah, I used to do uh, notes on typewriters. I used to do (laughs) typewriter notes on like vintage postcards. But I guess – should have just gone handwritten. I was one, I was one step
1: removed, man. But yeah. So again, you know, it's not, there's no one size fits all, right. And there, there's a certain, uh, you know, individual nature to this journey that, and I try not to take too many hard lines on things because what works for one person may not work for another.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like the way you work with your clients is very sort of Based on who they are yeah. and playing to the strengths. And I feel – and we've had co- conversations in the past with – on how you've helped sort of navigate clients through changes in looks or I forget like the kind of gray areas between age ranges and types. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a useful skill. I'm, I'm sort of talking about like – I feel like I, you told me once you had a client who was sort of like too young to be the young dad but too old to be the college guy and you kind of just this look and you're like – Let's grow a beard and you're going to be like the UPS delivery guy for a few years. Um, that's
1: correct. We did have a guy, a guy like that <laughs> and that's great memory. Um, yeah, it, you know, it, you are who you are and right. you can't change, you know, who you are for the most I'm
0: part. I'm not a six-foot black dude, exactly. unfortunately, for me.
1: And so, you know, where do you fit under the guise of advertising? Where, where, where do you currently fit?
0: Where do you go to find those types? So if someone's like look, thinking about their look, they're like, where do I fit? Do you just sort of rack your brain for what you see? and
1: like? Watch commercials.
2: Like- yeah.
1: I mean really a lot of what I draw is from commercials. I mean if you watch enough commercials, you'll know – you'll see the consistent archetypes and that's a word that I use a lot um, that are used in commercials. You know, they're – I Hit
0: me with a few. Hit me with a few archetypes.
1: Okay. So this particular guy uh, that we were just talking about, we, at this period of his life where he was kind of at that tweener ground, you know, we put him more in the blue collar range. Um, he was a blue collar guy. He was proud of a hard day's work. You know, uh, maybe he dr- drove a UPS truck or maybe he, you know, was a, a local farmer. Worked at a Bud Light factory. He worked at a Bud Light factory. He worked at, a, a, at an auto factory. You know, something in that vein for a period of time. So uh, another one might be, you know, one that I like to use, especially for somebody that has like a unique style about them and maybe unique hair or unique look or, you know, something that screams artistic. usually like to get a creative executive. Mm-hmm. So... So a creative employee rather than your typical corporate employee. I mean, if somebody right. has Apple jet black hair and, you know, and tattoos, they're not mm-hmm. working at, you know, IBM. So we tend to steer towards something in the professional realm, but not corporate, something that would right. be acceptable in a work environment in terms of dress. But it would fit more in a creative agency or an ad agency or a digital agency.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, that's so interesting. We talked about this a little earlier, but I kind of want to circle back to it, which yeah. is you're talking about actors' availability, and I know – I kind of want to talk about a couple of things. One is, like, what's your, what do you feel like is the best way for you guys to communicate with your actors? And how do you navigate th- those availability issues where, you know, it's work and, you know, your hustle and your work and trying to make that all happen?
1: And Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, our job is, as we've discussed already, is to identify opportunity and to get our clients auditions. And our client's job is to make them. So, you know, we understand that most people are here to be TV film actors, and we honor that and we respect that. But short of that, uh, or emergencies, of course, you know, we expect that our clients are going to make a lion's share, a, a very high percentage of the opportunities. That's their job. And so the hustle is an interesting point. I mean, coming from an empathetic point of view, I do understand how difficult it is to manage especially when you're starting out or if you're not in a position where you're earning a decent living in commercials, you know, there's a sort of catch 22. You have to pay your rent, you have to, you know, pay for your car and gas and food. Yeah. But you also have to make time for to make auditions. You know, if it was easy, everyone would do it. Right. So, you know, so it it really is a balance. And there are many, many, many people who make it work. I think the common thread and this is just dipping into another area but i think it's relevant is our most successful actors even from the time that they were n- not successful the common thread is they have personalities where things roll off their back mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. we call them good time people you know they're just always and they're always available it doesn't matter. We call, they're there.
0: Great. Yeah, that was, I was going to ask you that question about what are some of the habits of your most successful slash booking actors?
1: There's something about the person who can sit in two hours of traffic going to Santa Monica, show up, <laughs> and be in a good mood. Oh,
0: my God. Not only that, show up, look for parking, find parking, get there. They're an hour and a half behind.
1: They yeah. change your role <laughs> and still walk in and kill the room. Yeah. And aside from killing the room, I would make the argument just being present and cool and easygoing about it all.
0: Yes. And that is what
1: I mean by killing the room. It's like
0: maintaining your presence, being relaxed and confident and just like, hey, what's going on? Like as if none of that happened.
1: Exactly. I mean, that is a common thread. And someone who is holding on really tight, squeezing really tight, it typically shows in the room. Yes. Um,
0: Eh, And in the lobby and in their life
1: (laughs) right right so you know and that speaks to a whole other you know topic that we could talk about for hours which is we find that another common thread is that actors who are really comfortable in their own skin you know who've done whatever work is necessary to to be really confident in social situations and in audition situations You know, because our business is a little bit more of a social atmosphere than maybe TV and film. You know, you can kind of wall yourself off. But if you're on set in a commercial and you're dealing with business people who don't really understand actors, you know.
0: Or in the callback room. Or in the callback room. Eight people who are just sort of sitting back there in the darkness. So, that's that's interesting.
1: That's a common thread, you know, nowadays, especially being uh, flexible in the room. With, in terms of being able last minute to changes. adapt to last minute changes, you know, be light on your feet. It doesn't necessarily mean funny, it just means the ability to be adaptable and present and go with the flow. Yep. That we find, and that's a personality trait that some people have yep. that is just apparent and obvious, and that we see that as a common threat in our performers who do well.
0: That's great. Let me ask you this yep. for let's assume you have. Someone who is making all of their auditions or ninety percent or whatever—that's not an issue. Right. But they're just not getting callbacks, and/or maybe they've been getting callbacks every now and then, but they're not booking. And we—I'd like to sort of delineate between those two: what sure. matters more. Sure. At what point are you like, "This isn't working"?
1: Well, it's a great question. You know, we use the term a lot—at uh, least in our office—we say if someone's tracking well, and what we mean by that is from the moment we. just we formed our business partnership and they started attending auditions there was positive feedback there was a response either by a casting director calling them in repeated times over a course of a period of time you know that's always a good sign when an actor will go into a particular casting office and then that casting calls them in for their next 5 jobs mm. we know that they've found somebody that they really find interesting and viable in the room they're a fan they're a fan So then, you know, from that you graduate to callbacks. Is this person getting callbacks consistently? Anyone who's getting callbacks consistently, we feel is in a position to book. So then it becomes a question of if someone is, you know, the callback king or queen, and they're not booking, what tweaks need to be made? Uh, Mm -hmm. That's when someone like yourself comes in really handy. So that's right. So we, you know, might talk to to our performer about you know doing a refresher with a commercial instructor maybe there's something you're doing that you're not aware of that's just the difference between getting
0: yeah tough. i mean and in my experience you know that's always situational because really you're you're trying to achieve the same thing in the room and you've you've achieved it once at the first call most likely they saw something they liked someone did that's why you're there. But then what happens is the, the situation changes, which is now you're closer to the money, there's people in the room. And so on one hand, it requires a, a separate skill set, which speaks to sort of the social atmosphere you were talking about, mm-hmm. and your ability to flourish in, in that setting. Um, but also, it's mental toughness of the pressure of want being close to something that you want, that's highly competitive. And how do you deal with it. Are you able to still do what you did the first time Mm -hmm. under those conditions? And I think a lot of the times that's what it is. It's like basically what actors talk about, like getting in their head because of the nerves, Mm -hmm. et cetera, and, and being able to find tweaks for it that way.
1: Well, speak, and let me speak to that. I think part of what can help a performer to gain that mindset, I talk about this quite a bit with friends and our clients is, is Having a life outside of this industry.
0: Yes, you know, one hundred percent. The
1: more, the more you have going on in your life personally, whether it be relationships or hobbies or, you know, charities or interests, whatever, whatever it may be, the less important that callback becomes. And when I say that, I don't mean that it's not important. But
0: you mean to your identity as a human in your life. And, yeah, and to the next
1: day. <laughs> Yeah, right? you wake yeah I was just talking or... to
0: an actor about this. And I feel like what happens is like we get so tied up in basically the results of like ah, booking or did I get the callback? And then all of a sudden, if we don't, then we start thinking, I'm not a good actor. I'm not good at my job. I'm not a successful person. And then you don't want to be in that zone because that'll just take you down a very deep, dark hole, you know, and if we, it basically sort of create puts you in a place where you need a job to feel good about who you are, and if you're in touch with other elements, like you're saying, like, oh, I do this, and this is my job, but I also... Get worth from doing other stuff in my life that can really help balance and sort of take the pressure off of those
1: moments. Yeah, and and that's how most of the rest of the world lives. Right, right. And I'm not saying it's easy because this no career path is way different than climbing the corporate ladder for sure. But it does borrow some of the same mindsets. You know, there are people who go to work at offices every day, myself included, and. If my whole identity and life was dependent upon this job and this job alone, it'd be a pretty small life. It'd be a pretty boring life, you know? So, yeah.
0: So your advice to them is what? Sort
1: of engage more with stuff that's outside of the industry? Yeah, and I think it doesn't—I mean, without being an acting instructor, you might speak to this more, but I would think that that would lead to a more well-rounded performer as well. Um, yes, one hundred
0: percent. But also, and also, to your point, it like just makes you seem more like a person. Like we always sort of, and this isn't a great phrase, but we, you know, we talk in casting about like, oh, like they just want real people. And the insinuation there is actors are not real people, right? Um, and which is, of course, they are. But the, you know, what it, what they're speaking to is like we don't want to feel like you're performing. That you're performing and being someone that you're not. And especially commercially, you know, so often we, it's just like, we're just trying to cast you, but the challenge is you need to look, be totally comfortable being you under X, Y, and Z circumstances. Oh, you're, you just bought a new car and it's raining or whatever, but you need to make that look normal and just, and that's the challenge. Yes, you know?
1: And that also, you know, brushes up against what we were talking about before when you would ask about, uh, you know, what clients, what actors can do to do their part with their agents is an understanding of where they fit. Getting pictures that match the archetypes where they fit, not spreading a net too wide. you know, and I say that with an asterisk because there are certain very fortunate people who can spread a wide net and all more power to them. But you know particularly for someone you know just starting out, it's helpful to stick close to the vest as to who you are and where you fit. You know, shades of you shades of you that you can show up in the room and be that person pretty comfortably
0: and have it be authentic authenticity is such a sort of hot keyword in advertising and casting right now everything's meant to be real believable natural organic authentic and then they'll say oh we want real couples or like we want a real rock climber and then they get them and they get so self-conscious when they have to do the acting you know and yeah because 90% 90% of people are terrified of doing stuff where they're being, they're perceived that they're being judged, you know.
1: Part of the reason that commercials has leaned towards more, you know, real people, real skills, the timing of a production, the time from the concept to post production, that time has been shortened dramatically. So if you have a, a two day shoot and your concept involves an EMT pulling up a gurney and putting, you know, connecting somebody to an IV, there's really not time or the wherewithal to teach somebody how to do that. And have it look real. And have it look real. So it's just easier to hire the real EMT who can show up on set and knows exactly how everything works.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like the skill set needed there outweighs maybe the emotional performance, you know, like, It's more important that they can do X, Y, and Z, connect them to an IV, than it is that they, whatever we're requiring of them emotionally. Likelihood, we're not really requiring them anything that's outside of what they would do on their job.
1: Exactly. And then if you're a good actor, cream on top, right? So, and this differs to some degree from TV and film, where I have a friend who was hired one time on a TV show, and he had a recurring role, and he was going to be a guy who hunts a lot. And it's taking place in rural Georgia. And, you know, he fits the role. He suits the role. It's the type of role he'll play. But he didn't know the first thing about how to handle a gun. And so they flew him out two weeks early and they trained him. And they just don't have that kind of time.
0: Exactly. And, I mean, that's what I'm telling people. It's like, look, we're there's still an arc here. But for the sake of clarity, we don't have the time of an hour and a half of an arc to sort of get feel for your character. And so to that same point, like with a film – there's a lot required in terms of probably most likely emotional depth for that role, for your friend's role. Because he's got different scenes and he's got to be able to play them. And then there's also this hunting element where they're like, well, it's more important that we get someone who can do the acting mm-hmm. and then train them to hunt than it is like let's get a hunter and train them to act. That's going to be much harder.
1: Right. You know? I mean, in that scenario, you need someone who can carry a eight or nine episode arc. Right. Right. So who's exactly. who tells the story the best? And then we'll we'll figure out the particulars. There's a an inverse relationship in commercials to some degree.
2: Yes. And, and that's not to
1: diminish that the best case scenario is that somebody knows how to do that. And they're a good actor and they understand and they have emotional depth like, you know, that's that's best case scenario. Yeah, Uh,
0: Let me uh, – you've been very generous with your time and I just want to hit a couple other things before because I don't want to keep you too long. But let's sort of take that and move into where the industry is at now. Do you feel like there are big jobs out there still? Are they more rare? I mean you started 10 years ago and I – that's basically when I started and I know that there's been a massive change since then and you were in the industry prior to that as well. Mm -hmm. And from your side, like we see – our office's job's coming in, and as a session director, I bounce between offices, so I see that, but I feel like you guys also kind of have more of a pulse on, because you're going to see all the breakdowns that are coming out, and I talk to actors, I've talked to agents who are like, yes, I have actors who are making 200 plus K a year. Not It's not normal, but like, our big actors are making that. There are still forty thousand dollar jobs out there it's not just crumbs there's a lot more smaller jobs there's probably a lot less bigger jobs than that I just sort of want to get your take on that that's
1: how I would characterize it I mean or or describe it I, it there's still big jobs out there there's still advertisers that need to advertise on national network and cable there are less of those jobs there's certainly not the volume that we saw dating back five years it's certainly 10 years so yeah they're farther and a few between and there is you know our top people still make a very good living but i think that there is you know to possibly mirror society there's less of a middle class in commercials than there used to be
0: Do you see that as an ongoing trend or what's your – from your perch over there, what's your perspective
1: in terms of where this is all headed? Yeah, I do see it as an ongoing trend. You know, you're seeing more celebrities in commercials. There's a reason for that. Which is what? Well, you know, advertisers are doing the calculus. If you're going to do a large campaign that you plan on running that has a large media buy, a large run, if you hire seven actors who – you know, or below the line, nobody knows who they are. And you pay them each forty, fifty thousand $50,000 over the course of a year to run that commercial. You're talking about, let's say in my example, that's $350,000. Yeah. Well, you're starting to get into the range where if you just spend a little bit more, you can get one a person <laughs> who everybody knows to do it. And on the flip side of that, you know, films aren't paying what they used to. Mm. So many film actors are more open to doing commercials because the, the paychecks that used to be there aren't there.
0: Also, it's a sweet gig. It's
1: a really <laughs> sweet gig.
0: They're yeah. like, I don't want to leave L.A. I got to work two days and
1: I get to make all these demands. That's right. Done. <laughs> That's right. So so we're, we're seeing that, right? So, yeah. you know, so advertisers are trying to be more efficient with their dollars. We're, we're going to spend this much money. Where do we want to spend it? And advertising agencies are looking, and advertisers themselves, are looking at ROI, which is return on investment. We're putting this commercial out there, and and how much are our sales increasing? What kind of engagement are we getting with the consumer? They're running data on that end and seeing diminishing return, particularly in national network and cable, particularly in national network. Let's just isolate that. National Network is not garnering the eyeballs that it used to. You used to have three networks, and then there was four, and now there's five. But...
0: And we used to be forced to watch those commercials, whereas now it's too easy to sort of pay on a paywall. And you know, it really started with TiVo, just being able to skip them.
1: That's correct. And, and live television is you know, diminishing other than sports. That's why sports are some of the more heavily advertised events throughout the year because they're live and most people watch them live. So you have a captive audience. So, you know, if you're getting a lower and lower return on investment from a particular medium, then you're going to tend to use it less and less. And advertisers get better ROI on cable and they get outstanding ROI on digital. Digital. So if that's the case, it's not like the rates for broadcast television have decreased with the diminishing eyeballs. The rates are still the same. So as a result, you know, advertisers are looking – At television advertising differently, spending their money in different places, you know, there's always going to be a place for auto ads that advertise, you know, the Memorial Day sale. That's a staple that's not going away. I mean, it's tried and true. They want as many people to know that they're having a sale this weekend. And if you're in the market to buy a car, then you want to get down there. Those are staple products like household products are typically trying to grab as many eyeballs as they possibly can. But a lot of technology and digital projects are trying to find their tribe. Yeah, and so it's targeted. they're they're being more targeted with their dollars. Plus, there's a lot of new companies that are trying to do things differently and be more efficient with how they spend their advertising dollars. I remember there was a a car company years ago, and I'm forgetting the name. I want to say it was the Neon, mm-hmm. but it might not be. What's that boxy car that? The Kia? Or no,
0: the uh, I know what you're talking about. It's like a hip hop car. It's so.
1: kind of like a car that a lot of like, you know, if you're a uh, if you're an editor at a film company, you've got one of these cars. <laughs> you know, it's that boxy car. Anyway, I do know years ago I remember the point at what which just happened, they stopped doing television advertising. Yeah. And they started throwing themed promotional parties in big cities. Uh-huh. Because the people who were buying their automobiles weren't watching commercials. And so they just stopped trying. On that medium, and went straight to the source. So, when you see that happening, it has taken away from you know some of the income that actors who previously relied on national network usage. It's taken away from that pool. Hopefully, that answers your question.
0: It does. Are you talking about this Scion? Oh, uh, yeah, messiah That's it. That's it. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, you know, the conversation that's always happening in casting lobbies is about, like, oh, the amount of non union work, and it's all going non union. And people are always asking me, like, oh, it's just more and more non union. And I've sort of told them, well, I feel like it's kind of plateaued. You know, I mean, it's still, in my experience, is, I'd say it's sitting around maybe 65 35 you know with fluctuations i feel like it's like for us in terms of what i noticed like the biggest peak was a few years ago then it sort of plateaued and of course there's still non union jobs but the industry is shifting so drastically you know piggyback on what we're just talking about in terms of how people are consuming media you know like when i think about how i see commercials i see them on my phone when i'm scrolling through like sports apps You know, I, I'm like plugged into all these streaming services where there are no commercials. This is maybe bad because I'm in the industry, but it's like, you know, you work at a pizza shop, you don't want to be eating pizza all day. So I'm happy to not be seeing commercials, (laughs) but, uh, you know, and then I'll see them. Like if I'm at a bar or something, point being, like you're saying, like it's so much of them, a physically very small. They're in the palm of my hand, often cases targeted to me, often cases, the run digitally on social or otherwise is likely relatively short. And I feel sort of like, I talked to someone recently who was telling me like, look, like 15 years ago, this is an executive at um, a really big VFX firm in LA that handles commercial content. He's like, 15 years ago, they let's say you had $10 million. They put that all in one spot. You know, and now they're breaking that up. Instead of doing one spot, they're doing 25 spots and they're targeting them. But there's not more money for 25 spots. It's the same amount of money, but it's going in. And then not only that, but production's gotten so much cheaper that these smaller production companies are able to start up and sort of vie for an underbid on jobs where like these big commercial directors of the last two decades are saying you know, they're putting their bids in on jobs and they're coming in way too high because they're bidding what they used to bid. And these other young pups are coming up and be like, oh, we can do that for a quarter of that. And part of that is the casting budget, you know? And they're like, "Ah, we could go non-union for this. It's so small. And they're going for it because they're not investing a large amount. They're like, all right, let's take a risk. This isn't a huge investment if it doesn't work out. Do you feel like that's accurate or what's your take on that?
1: That's really accurate. I mean it goes back to what I was saying earlier about you know, everybody in the supply chain is being asked to do more with less. Right. So advertisers are asking ad agencies to do more with less. Ad agencies are asking production to do more with less. Yes. Production's asking casting to do more with less, right? Yes, yes. Um, you know, what you previously might have spent, you might have spent two days on casting a job. You're now doing it in one day. Yep. Same day. Uh, right. right. We need this now. And okay. so efficiencies are being handed down, and I'm seeing this happen and I'm having conversations with ad agency executives about the impact it's having on the ad agency world because there are smaller digital ad agencies now that are able to make digital or social content for a lot cheaper and charge a lot less and that's having an impact on the larger ad agencies that are signatories to the union right so they're you know it's um Common business practice, undercutting, right? Mm -hmm. It happens in every business. You know, somebody makes the same product, but they make it cheaper. So that trend has been happening over the last, you know, several years. Uh, You described it perfectly. I am seeing a larger percentage of non-union jobs than before. Uh Now, some of this tends to lie with the talent agency and with their roster, Right. We don't submit on a lot of non-union jobs. In fact, we don't submit on most non-union jobs because we've seen the pay scales in those non-union jobs go so low that it's not worth our performers or our time. Race to the bottom. It is a race to the bottom in some respects. And also the value that the advertiser is deriving is not commensurate with the pay that is being offered. You know, something that performers don't often think of, but agents do is, you know, indirect conflicts. What does that mean? Well, you've probably witnessed this in in a callback room when you're d- running camera. You know it looks like someone who did you know, a non-union digital commercial for XYZ soda mm-hmm. and they're now in the room auditioning for Sprite. Yeah And the digital commercial that they did for XYZ soda doesn't carry any conflicts, hopefully. If their agent, you know, paid attention to that in the release Yeah. the contract, they didn't sign the contract that way. But, you know, it's very easy for somebody to Google someone. Yeah, and, and likely see, is for then,
0: XYZ Soda, that spot's still online.
1: It's still there <laughs> and it's visible and, you know, and then that all of a sudden becomes what we call an indirect conflict. You aren't technically in conflict. You're not contractually.
0: But they may conflict. not want it.
1: But they may not want you now. Yeah. They want, may not want to consider you because it's for their arch rival or it's for someone – it's for a product that they – or that video garnered five million views and it's a really you know – it's gone viral. So the possibility of indirect conflict, and that's something performers don't often think about. And mm. so when we talk to performers about that, we talk to them about it in the context of a career. Are you building a career mm. or are you just trying to get a job?
0: Yeah, I really think that is the crux. I was literally just talking to a good buddy of mine who's very involved in all of the SAG stuff and talking about yeah. the FICOR situation. He's And that really is what it comes down to because I think a lot of actors who are FICOR are frustrated because they're not working and they just want to work. And a lot of actors who are, you know, sort of hardcore SAG are really focused on the career and chin and health like you're building for something much bigger um, than just the job that's right in front of you and but that can be a hard sell for people who feel like you know they're trying to make a middle-class lifestyle where they're just trying to make ends meet in the moment you know
1: right it really is the you know the sixty four thousand dollar question to be answered to date myself a bit so mm-hmm. i don't have the answers i do know what i see I do know that actors' performance has been significantly devalued over the last 10 years and probably on a larger scale over the last 20 years. How to turn that ship around is probably beyond my pay scale. But I do know that there is a certain value in a professional actor who shows up on set, knows what they're doing, knows how to deliver, uh, is easy to work with. There is a value to that. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we hear of, uh, you know, a, a non union casting, casting 20 people and 17 of them are FICOR that've had an off the record conversation with a cast director about something, about a project, then that tells you that they may not have found the quality of actor they were looking for if those people had an audition for that project. Right. And that's without taking a a strong position on anything. I mean, I believe in the union, but I also believe in people's right to earn a living. So, you know, so I I tend to be Switzerland on that topic, but.
0: No, and I mean, you're right. And I think that there's very little question about the fact that of like offering union talent for non-union wages being a race to the bottom. You know, they're like, oh, well, we got it last time. And we'll get it next time. There's, I don't think there's a question about that. The question really is that sort of the crux of like, yeah, but these people just want to work and they don't feel like there's union jobs for them. And so I feel like the union would say, well, that's tough. You got to wait. If you wait and enough people do the right thing, there will be more, you know. But they're like, yeah, but there aren't, you know. So I do exactly. think it comes down to sort of like people who are predisposed to take the long view on things, to look at this as a career, to look what they're building towards versus – People who are really in the moment and just saying, like, yeah, but I want to work now. Like, I didn't come to be a union member. I came to be an actor. And if I go route A, non-union, FICOR, I work more as an actor. If I go route B, I'm supporting my union, but I'm working less. And that's a totally valid argument in a lot of ways, but it is destructive to the union itself.
1: Yeah. And I think it's very destructive to the union. And I think, you know, it depends on who you're talking about too. You know, if somebody has a part-time career as an actor over a 20 year period, and that part-time career is largely fueled by non-union work. And that person is a union actor who occasionally books a union job. It's a, an ethical question of sorts. It's a, a societal question as to whether that person by doing that is doing more damage to You know, their fellow community and And their own career and their own career, and is it worth it? Is it providing enough benefit to do a few jobs a year and to maintain your status as an actor, or are you really living and doing a job that's paying your rent? And this is sort of this becomes a hobby, right? Yeah, and I don't know how you know if somebody does that for a short period of time, usually when. You know, where we see it the most is new actors who will work, you know, non union to get experience and will make mistakes and stub their toes and sign contracts they shouldn't and, you know, be involved in productions they shouldn't and then eventually move on. But what we're seeing for a variety of reasons, like we discussed, is when we're seeing that now impact people who are 10, 15, 20 years into the business. Yes. Which we didn't see as much before. Yeah.
0: I've always sort of thought of it as like one way analogy is um, it's like the minors and the majors, right? And sort of what you just just described is like, oh, the actor comes in, they're in the minor leagues, they kind of get their chops, they get their feet on their own, and they move up to the majors. and then. But I think the flip side of that analogy is like, okay, well, I'm in the majors, but I'm sitting on the fucking bench. I came to play. They're like, okay, go down. But you're saying I can't go down to the minors, but I have to step here and play. And I think what SAG would say maybe then it's like, You could go down to the minors, but you can't play in the majors. Then,
1: meaning
0: you have to like withdraw your membership
1: completely. And and somebody more hardline would say, "Well, maybe this isn't a career for you." Correct. Right. And that's and again, this is a is a complex issue that is you know isn't easily answered. But the reality of the situation that we see now is that non union work is becoming more and more prevalent. The wages uh, associated with that non-union work are going down. And, you know, it's an interesting attitude that some uh, or perspective, I should say, that some in in our industry have, particularly on the production and casting side that I find really, really interesting. We're hearing more and more, especially when we deal with newcomers who are working on a non-union project, we hear more and more from production and casting. Don't they want to make X amount of dollars? Right. I mean, what else are they going to be doing that day? Yeah. Right? We've, so much I've more heard, than they
0: would work, make as a bartender.
1: I've heard that. I've heard that before.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, for sure.
1: And I think it's a slightly unfair characterization, in my opinion, because if I went to that casting director or that production person and said, listen, I have this project that I want to shoot on Sunday. I'm funding it myself. Are you free?
0: To cast it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Are you free? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm free on Sunday. Yeah. Okay. I have $50 to spend.
2: Yeah.
1: It's $50 more than you would have made on Sunday. Right. Because it sounds like you're free. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so you and I both know that the response I'd receive from 99% of people would be I'd rather have my Sunday. Yeah. Right. So what we're seeing because of the diminishing wages, not only in non-union, but it's had an impact on union wages because we're seeing all kinds of new agreements now that are being agreed to and developed by the union, Yeah, um, is we are starting to see some people who have flexible but good-paying survival jobs Mm -hmm. find their flexible, good-paying survival job to be more appealing than Mm -hmm. going on set for a couple of hundred dollars. Yes. Right. It's because it's not for them. It's not about being on television. Yeah. Right. It's not about the thrill of being on television, telling your parents at home for them, it's a career. And so we're reaching that sort of tipping point because some of our actors do really well in their survival jobs and do well in commercials. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. So so when that point is reached, then you have people turning down auditions saying, no, I'm not, I'm not going to that. I, I can make as much or close to that amount and not deal with the stress of driving across town for two auditions.
0: So are you talking specifically maybe about low-paying union jobs? And
1: non-union jobs. And yeah. non-union Both. jobs, right. Both. Yeah, 100%. We we have actors, particularly you know seasoned actors, and all agents have clients like this. I would assume
2: mm-hmm.
1: that that won't go to certain jobs.
2: Yes,
0: one
1: hundred percent. It's got to be a, a you know a national network commercial. It's or not worth it. It's not worth driving across town for two auditions and missing out on a day, shooting on a day where, you know, I can potentially be auditioning for something else that would make me a lot more money.
0: Yeah, I mean, and like, I do think it comes down to sort of just like a free market economy question, which is like, will the market bear it? Can, with these low-paying jobs, can they get what they're looking for? And it seems like the answer is yes. And whether or not it's because, does FICOR, um, like, people who are crossing the union line help absolutely not but even so and we've i've definitely cast a ton of non-union jobs that have no you know that is purely truly non-union talent where they're fine with it because a they don't have the money b you're right they're devaluing the performance this is not a national network spot that's going to be airing for 6 months to seen by everyone you know this is a little spot that's going to air for 30 days and people are going to see it On their phones. So we don't really care that much about this performance in this situation, you know, and I think that you are seeing that and it's sort of this is we're going to see where this ends up because there is going to be cases where it's like, wait a second, we're not getting the talent we need because it's not worth it to them. But it it seems like for the most part, they're being like, "Eh, it's okay.
1: In, in some cases that's the case in some cases a job will go union because they couldn't find during the initial casting yep. um, in some cases they'll increase the rates on a non-union job because they're not getting what they're finding but yeah i think i think you know the market at some point you know the market will have to correct itself we you hope we hope it, it would ha- it would have to i mean because if it diminishes to a point that it's not worth it for anyone in the supply chain to work in it then there's no one to work in it right so part of the reason why many 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 people move to los angeles every year to pursue a dream of being a tv or film actor is because of the money involved and if the money isn't there anymore then that's the good part of the dream that's tricking the out of the equation
0: so from your humble position over there what would be your advice to the union at this point what would you say from your perspective
1: (laughs) i have a big idea i believe in you know when it comes to these sorts of problems too and these issues you know think big what i would like to see the union become is the foremost media expert in the world from a technology standpoint, from a tracking standpoint, from a click standpoint. Um, having an
0: understanding of how people are consuming media, where it's being played, all of that.
1: That's right. Invest, partner with a technology company or companies and become the foremost media expert so that it gives you tremendous leverage when you're dealing with, you know, in a negotiation. Mm. If you come to the table as being the foremost expert, then it carries a lot of leverage.
0: This sort of sounds like what the uh, NFL Players Union did with regards to concussions.
1: It's exactly it. That's yeah. exactly what the NFL Players Union did. It, and, you know, if you read about that topic, the NFL Players Union, you know, in some ways surprised the NFL by coming to the table with a mountain of research. And so it gives you leverage. You know, I think that would be my big idea for the union is to really invest in becoming the foremost expert so that companies, media companies around the world are coming to SAG after it and saying, how, how do I track this? Mm-hmm. How does this work? Yeah, I think and, it's
0: cool. I think it's a cool thought for sure.
1: And then your members are, you know, uh, aligned with an organization that, that has their best interests in mind and... Has the wherewithal to negotiate contracts for their members that can, you know, hopefully earn them a living.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very interesting idea for sure. Good. Yeah. Um, listen, we've gone so much longer than I told you we'd go. <laughs> no so I, I appreciate it, but I want to get just a couple of quick hits. Um, no I, I had some questions that I had actors post on my Facebook, just if. Knowing I was going to talk with you, that they want so we can make. Yep. I won't ask like these belabored long follow up questions to these. So if, this is for a child actor. His agent is getting him above average auditions. When mm-hmm. is there is there a time, and if so, when is that time to switch agents to go to the next level?
1: Well, my first question would be: Is that actor booking? Yes. Okay, and then my follow up question would be. What is the next level? I mean, are we talking about commercials?
0: Let's say we are. Uh, no, let's, I guess not because what is the yeah. next level commercially? I don't know.
1: Yeah, exactly. So if this is more of a TV film question, I don't necessarily have an answer for that because right. I'm Right that's that's in that world. You know, in our commercial world, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you're getting out and you're booking jobs, most people are pretty comfortable with that scenario. The only time I've seen actors become uncomfortable with that scenario is where their agents might not be garnering, you know, or negotiating when, if and when they can. Got it. And garner better deals. That's great.
0: Okay, so here's a question. When you see breakdowns, how do you decide which actor from your roster to submit, assuming you have a choice of actors that are a good fit? Do you submit all of them, or do you only submit the one you think is the best match?
1: Well, this is specific to our agency because we only have a small number of clients so at this mm-hmm. point. About 130, 125 clients, I think, is the number. So um, so the number is going to be a lot smaller than another agency. We don't stack the, our roster with a lot of the same types of people. Mm-hmm. So we're going to submit whoever fits the, you know, specifically fits that breakdown. You know, it depends on the breakdown too. Some breakdowns are a little more wide ranging. Some are very, very, very specific. Some will even, you know, reference known actors or will include picture references. Yeah. So to the best of our ability, we'll match our client's personality, look, vibe with what the casting director is asking for, and if we're unsure, we'll ask the casting director. Yeah, do you
0: think this person's a good match? And for the record, I think you said like 150, is that all right?
1: We're actually about 125 now. 125. So that'd yeah.
0: be boutique. I think like the bigger agencies, and you may know more than me, are like four or five, 600.
1: I think most agencies in town are between four and 700. Okay, cool. And then there are some that have more, but yeah um
0: and i can yeah. I can speak to that question a little in saying that some agencies just submit everybody. some agencies just submit the ones they know that office likes and then they'll pitch ones that they want. those are sort of the more engaged agents, so I think it really depends on who your agent is
1: um yeah we we we'll, we'll, you know look we're we're not working with somebody. it serves us no purpose not to submit someone who's right for a role mm Right. Yeah. So it's so it doesn't make any sense to sort of favorite one person over another. Now, whether that cast director calls in their favorite or not is another story that we have sometimes very little control over.
0: Right. Okay. So, so this is sort of a related question. How much do you need to know about your talent to submit them accurately? Is it just a headshot and a resume or do you see them often outside of acting to better gauge
1: who they are? That's a great question. And it's changed. Nowadays, we do need to know our talent. We need to know who they are. We need to know what they're about. We need to know what skills you're capable of, what experiences they've had. We had somebody book a job a few years ago because we knew that she did charity in Africa and Mm -hmm. it was a testimonial and they wanted people who had actually done charity in Africa.
0: Yep, Speaking to the real experience stuff. Yep.
1: So the fact that we knew that about her, is essentially the reason she got the audition and she, why she booked the job. Mm. So, how did you know we, that?
0: Do you hang out with her or is she just that's just from your conversations?
1: It's a client that we have developed a relationship with and that we would go to dinner with occasionally and that we would have a phone conversation with over and above just you know confirming an audition. Got it. In that case, but now there's ways for actors or performers to communicate their additional skills to us in their electronic profiles so that we have access to that information.
0: You're talking about Um, posting videos and photos or
1: videos. We specifically use an area called other experience, Mm. which is LA casting, which has is a free form writing area, which we have people put bullet points of different skills and experiences that they have that are outside of the realm of acting or maybe within the realm of acting. If somebody's really great with accents, you know, they may have checked off, the boxes in their alley casting profile. But what does that mean? Yeah. You know, so we want some more context. If you say you're, you know, a moderate swimmer, what does that mean? Does it, do you go two times a week and swim regularly or do you go in the ocean? Do you, or does that just mean that you used to swim a lot and now right. you know you could get back in the pool and be really good. Right. Right. All so right. there's, so those sorts of things and we kind of, you know, we, it isn't out of the question we've had this happen that cast directors will call and say, Hey, you submitted this person. What's their deal? What why why did you submit them? What is what is that about? And
0: then How good are they? Are they really a, can they really ride a horse? Or do they, they just have seen a horse?
1: That's right. Or, you know, if it's a particular regional accent. And you know, and the fact that we're able to say, Oh yeah, she's from Plano, Texas. She went to Baylor University. She has a you know, authentic Texas accent. So you know your clients. Yeah. And so it really, I think it helps the process because you're putting your people in the best positions to succeed. Yeah. Um, And you sort of have to do with look too, by the way. I think that's important too. So if somebody has aged Mm. and you haven't seen them for a while, Mm. they've changed their hair and you don't know that, then you're sending them into rooms that they may not be right for. Because sometimes casting's making decisions based on a picture that they're looking at, and the person who shows up in the room is inaccurate.
0: So, are you good with actors just popping by your office, or what? How would that work? They just call well, you and say I got my good. haircut.
1: We so, so we decided a long time ago because it's just the two of us, and because of the way we operate, we don't have an open door policy, which I know is not you know popular with some. Of our performers but we decided a long time ago that we would anytime any client wanted to meet we would make an appointment and meet with them Mm -hmm. and we would give them our undivided attention as opposed to somebody walking in unexpected and who knows i might have just had i might be on the phone you know with a production company sorting out an issue on set and i'm unable to really talk or be present so we just decided make an appointment like you know call us Email us, Texas. Us, send a, you know, we're
0: we're business partners.
1: Let's make, yeah. let's have a meeting. Let's sit down and meet, or let's get on a phone call. Let's schedule it, and we'll sort out what we we need to sort out, or discuss what we need to discuss, or catch up. Or got it. You know, and our our clients, some of our clients have invited us to lunch or dinner, and we always, with very response. little exception, we'll go. Yeah. yeah, and we and we try to go to performances as much as we can, more so during the slow season than during the heavy season.
0: And one last quick question: So, if someone, what's your advice to someone who's looking for an agent to get in touch? Do they call? Do they cold submit? Or what's for you guys? What do you guys like?
1: Well, for us, you know, we prefer electronic submissions through our website. Because we can look at the profile quickly and easily. The profile is your first line of representation. So, you know, it gives us a quick snapshot of who we're looking at and what they're about. Mm -hmm. We'd usually like to see real so that we can see the person walking and talking. And given how easy it is to have real nowadays, that that's something we like to see. So because the picture doesn't always tell the full story. And so that's us specifically. But. If I was to tell you that I've, we've never called in anybody from a hard copy submission, I'd be lying to you. Right. Right. So, you know, you do what you got to do, but that's our preference. And then what are we looking for in a submission? You know, first and foremost, we're looking to fill a spot on a roster that we don't have. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important concept To, or, you know, it's really important to understand you know, that it's really not personal in that way. We have a certain people of certain ages and ethnicities and types, and we're looking for something that we don't have that's viable in the marketplace. And if we already have three or four of you, or two of you or one of you, then it may not make sense to bring on somebody or to call somebody in for me. So that's not a personal thing that's just a business thing. And quite frankly if you were an actor submitting to an agency and they had a, you know, a number of people like you, you may not want to be there because you may not, you know, you may be the odd person out when casting asks for their favorite 5, right? or their favorite 10. So that's first and foremost. Secondly, we're looking for, you know, obviously experience helps, you know, TV and film credits help. Commercial casting loves calling in people who work in TV and film, so you know, that's an obvious one. You know, a solid professional photo or two that give us a sense of your of your type that's in line with where you're going to be called in to casting gives us a sense that you know who you are and where you fit. It gives us a sense that you're a professional because you've, you've sourced a, a professional photographer and taken that photo. For commercials, comedy experience always helps particularly the improv schools casting directors love that they've decided that that gives them a better chance of having a flexible malleable actor in the room and you know the the asterisk here is that sure if there's somebody that we have you know a similar type but they are an experienced you know commercial booker that are looking to change or they don't have an agent currently um, you know that might trump Yeah, a little experience. Yeah. I mean, you know, to be perfectly honest, that would trump much of what I just said. Right. So gearing it more towards somebody newer to the business, which is I anticipate where you're, you know, primarily is asking these type of questions. And that's that's it. You know, one thing that – the most common thing that I see when we receive submissions that doesn't provide us with a clear picture of who the person is, it's either – you know, really amateur looking pictures, it's just an instant read of somebody that is outside of the business and really doesn't have a, a clear understanding, right? That's not to say we have never called in anybody with bad pictures, because we have. And then, you know, seeing a resume that's not filled out or not filled in, we we don't know what this person's capable of today. Were they a stockbroker yesterday, and they've decided to become an actor today? We don't know. Yeah. So, you know, just like any other business, the more professional sort of thorough presentation, the more opportunity we have to be engaged in what that performer is submitting to us. Awesome. That's awesome.
0: All right. I'm going to give you really quick ones where I just want like one word reply, okay? You got it. From a commercial standpoint. Headshots are? Tools. Flexibility is? Important. Communication is?
1: Really important
0: and presence is. Wait, I didn't think I heard presence is.
2: <laughs> I'm
1: trying to. Oh, you're I'm thinking of one. Thinking one <laughs> thought one, you one, have one have cut one out. for that one. Uh, presence is valuable. And
0: success is possible. Awesome, Kenneth. Thank you so much, dude. You've been more than generous with your time. Way too generous. <laughs> appreciate no it. I, I got you. You got a lunch coming your way from me okay. anytime you want. Wow. I really appreciate it. I'm going to hang up and we'll, we'll sign off.
1: Okay. Thanks Toby.